Welcome to the Improve the News podcast on Independence Day, July 4th, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Eric Steiner with a look at today's top stories. Israel launches a massive operation into Janine. U.S. Treasury Secretary Yellen plans to visit China. The U.S. and Mexico consider a new refugee program. Israel inks a $3 billion deal for American F-35 fighter jets. A U.K. building society admits to closing the accounts of those who discriminate. Two are killed and dozens injured in a Baltimore shooting. Twitter is sued over unpaid office fees. U.K. police are given more power to crack down on climate protests. A fund for the French police officer who killed Nahel M. tops $1 million. And a study links COVID to youth diabetes. In our top story, Israel launches a massive operation into Janine. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, The Times of Israel, New York Times, Reuters, Al Jazeera, and Guardian. Starting early on Monday, Israel launched a massive military operation into the northern West Bank city of Janine, killing at least eight Palestinians, five of which were teenagers, and injuring about 80 others. This campaign, called a brigade-level raid, reportedly involved more than 1,000 troops and over 10 drone strikes, with the Israeli military claiming to have struck a command center used by Palestinian militants in the adjacent Janine refugee camp. The scale of the operation is the largest since the Second Intifada two decades ago. The Israeli military said that it sought to, quote, to break the safe haven mindset of the refugee camp, with a local Palestinian administrative committee member saying that people are terrified and did not expect such a large operation. Gun battles between Israeli forces and Palestinian fighters and drone strikes are ongoing as of the evening of Monday local time. In a separate incident, a Palestinian man was killed near Ramallah after Israeli forces shot him in the head at a military checkpoint. The Palestinian Authority called the Israeli operation, quote, a war crime. Al Jazeera reported that there is no sign that the fighting will soon subside, adding that there has been intense fighting towards the center of the refugee camp and a local mosque. The situation in the West Bank has deteriorated in the last year as Israel has launched regular raids in the area following a spree of Palestinian attacks last year. There has also been an increased number of attacks on Israeli settlers in the West Bank in recent months, as settler attacks against Palestinians have also increased. Well, on this program, we separate the spin from the facts. Middle East Eye brings us our pro-Palestine narrative. Israel is pushing the situation in the occupied West Bank to a breaking point by increasingly attacking Palestinian cities and committing war crimes. The current attack on Janine is reminiscent of the 2002 Battle of Janine, in which Israel killed over 50 Palestinians and laid waste to the city's refugee camp. Though Israel clearly wants to continue its assault on the Palestinian people, it will have to keep in mind other fronts such as Gaza and Lebanon, where it does not want to see an escalation. The pro-Israel narrative comes from Jerusalem Post. Unfortunately, Israel has been forced to react to increasing Iranian interference in the West Bank and break the mindset that Janine can be used as a springboard to launch attacks against Israeli civilians. For too long, Palestinian terrorists have been allowed to operate relatively freely in the northern West Bank. This must change. Additionally, Iran has been increasing its support to terrorists, fomenting a violent situation to which Israel must respond. 
And from time to time, we have statistics-based nerd narratives brought to us by the Metaculous Prediction community. This one says there's a 42% chance that Israel will recognize Palestine by the year 2070. Want to help us improve the news? Go to improvethenews.org slash pod and take our quick survey and tell us what you think. And now, back to the news. U.S. Treasury Secretary Yellen to visit China. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Hong Kong Free Press, Reuters, Al Jazeera, The Guardian, The Japan Times, and CNN. The Chinese Finance Ministry on Monday confirmed that U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen will visit Beijing starting Thursday, amid ongoing efforts to mend bilateral relations between the superpowers. According to the U.S. Department of the Treasury, during her July 6th through 9th trip, Yellen will address the need to responsibly manage relations between the world's two largest economies, establish direct lines of communication in areas of concern, and cooperate to tackle global challenges. In her talks with top PRC officials, she is reportedly expected to also raise concerns about the impact of a new Chinese counterintelligence law on foreign and U.S. companies and touch on economic measures to protect U.S. national security from China. The Biden administration claims that safeguards are not aimed at decoupling the economies or economically disadvantaging China, pointing to this visit as a sign of its intent to achieve cooperation on issues such as climate change and concerns over debt. Last week, Yellen stated that her long-anticipated trip, which had been put on hold due to U.S.-China tensions, is about restoring contact between the Biden administration and the reshuffled PRC leadership in order to discuss disagreements and avoid misunderstandings. This comes after U.S. President Joe Biden compared the Chinese President Xi Jinping to dictators at a campaign fundraiser in June, and U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken previously said his recent trip to China yielded progress in improving strained Sino-U.S. relations. Thank you, Scott, for those facts. Our first spin is an establishment critical narrative, and it's coming from Global Times. Yellen's trip is the latest chapter in the U.S.'s diplomatic charm offensive, which offers nothing but empty words that conflict with its hostile policy toward China. The U.S. may now be striking more moderate tones, talking about de-risking rather than the foolish decoupling of the U.S. economy from that of China. Yet even more pragmatic U.S. officials like Yellen cannot hide the fact that Washington is basically pursuing a hegemonic de-China strategy aimed at containing the PRC's economic and technological rise. With this tactic, the U.S. ends up hurting itself the most. And we have a counter-pro-establishment narrative from Washington Post. Although Sino-U.S. relations are strained, Yellen enjoys credibility in China, where she has emerged as a proponent of constructive bilateral ties at a time of growing mistrust between Washington and Beijing. As a pragmatist, Yellen embodies the Biden administration's recent de-risking approach which aims to protect U.S. national interests rather than seeking a full economic disengagement that would cause massive damage to both countries and the global economy. While Yellen's trip is unlikely to lead to a breakthrough, it is another step toward de-escalation. The Metaculous Prediction community gives us a nerd narrative for this story. They say there's a 15% chance that the U.S. and China will be at war before 2035. According to a recent report, U.S. and Mexico are considering a new refugee program. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Newsmax, and La Prensa Latina Media. Anonymous sources say that U.S. and Mexican officials are discussing a new refugee program for some non-Mexicans waiting in Mexico 
to claim asylum in the U.S. Under the new program, migrants who qualify would be able to enter the U.S. under the Refugee Resettlement Program, which is currently only available to applicants who are abroad. One source added that migrants would need to show they were in Mexico before June 6th of this year to qualify, though none specified the number of migrants that would be able to benefit from the program. The program would include migrants from several countries, including Cuba, Nicaragua, and Venezuela. Under a current policy, migrants must apply for U.S. entry on a smartphone app and later request asylum. Another program allows Cubans, Haitians, Nicaraguans, and Venezuelans to request entry by air if they have U.S. sponsors. This comes as hundreds of thousands of migrants from Cuba, Haiti, Nicaragua, and Venezuela have passed through Mexico into the U.S. in recent years to claim asylum which fast-tracks the path to permanent residency within a year, they must prove that they were persecuted for their race, religion, nationality, social status, or politics. The Republican narrative comes from Daily Caller. Biden can't be trusted to create new immigration policies that will keep the U.S. secure and safe. What's needed isn't new ways to make it easier for people to enter the U.S., but better enforcement of immigration law with state authorities and the military aiding federal agents who are being overwhelmed because of Biden's open border policies. MSNBC brings us the Democratic narrative. Republican policies on immigration are cruel to those seeking a better life in the U.S. and can incite violence against those already in the country. What's needed is a policy that verifies asylum seekers' claims while making sure all legitimate requests are met so that the U.S. can be a refuge for those who need it. Israel inks a $3 billion deal for U.S. F-35 fighter jets. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Times of Israel, Al Jazeera, Reuters, and the Associated Press. Israel's Ministry of Defense said on Sunday that it has approved the purchase of 25 F-35 stealth fighter jets from the U.S. in a deal worth $3 billion, raising the total number of F-35s in Israel's arsenal to 75. Israel is the only Middle Eastern country in possession of the aircraft. The deal will be financed through the military aid Israel receives from the U.S. The ministry has also said that Lockheed Martin, the makers of the plane, and engine manufacturer Pratt & Whitney have agreed to involve Israeli defense industries in the manufacturing of the jets and their components. Israel began acquiring F-35s in 2016 with all 50 of the planes from the initial deal expected to be delivered by 2024 with 36 of them being delivered by November 2022, Israel is the first country outside of the U.S. to possess F-35s. The F-35 is considered to be the most advanced fighter jet currently on the market. Israel claims to be the first country to use it in combat as it ramps up airstrikes in Syria to disrupt Iranian supply lines to its allies. The United Arab Emirates has long desired to purchase F-35s, but its close ties with China have stymied progress toward being the second Middle Eastern state to have the jet in its arsenal. Scott, thank you for that update. The first spin is a pro-Israel narrative coming from CNBC. This expansion of the F-35 deal between the U.S. and Israel shows that the relationship between the two nations is stronger than ever, as Israel gains more tools to protect itself and its interests in the region. Maintaining air superiority over Israel's enemies is the only way to guarantee the safety of the Israeli people. And responsible statecraft brings us the anti-Israel narrative. America is underwriting Israel's human rights violations with its lax attitude towards arms exports. The U.S. is breaking its own laws and moral principles by continuing to expand arms shipments 
to a country committing severe human rights abuses. The hardline, right-wing Israeli government in office is unlikely to reverse course anytime soon, making this deal even more egregious. Do you still have your F-16 that was decommissioned and that you bought at auction? Yeah, I mean, but the thing is, it's like when Oprah gives you a new car, you got to pay for the insurance. You got to pay the tax. I mean, a free jet ain't a free jet. Let me tell you, brother. I see you zipping around those skies every day, though, Scott. So you can't well, tell me you're Well, I mean, if you're going to pay for it, I, I'm enjoying <laughs> it. I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying I, no, you're not hearing me complain about the jet. I'm just saying, you know. <laughs> News coming from the United Kingdom as the Building Society admits closing accounts of people who discriminate. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Daily Mail, The Telegraph, Times, Bloomberg, Independent and Express UK. A leading British building society on Friday revealed that it closes customers' accounts if they engage in behavior considered discriminatory amid an uproar as banks are accused of dumping people over their political beliefs. The Yorkshire Building Society, or YBS, which has 3 million customers, stated that these decisions aren't made on different opinions, but rather on a case-by-case basis when a client is rude, abusive, violent, or discriminates in any way. In a note seen by the Times, the lender informed the Anglican Reverend Richard Fothergill, who had been with the YBS for 17 years, that his account would be closed within 14 days, citing a zero-tolerance approach to discrimination after he protested against the institution allegedly pushing transgender ideology. This comes as Brexit leader Nigel Farage claimed on Thursday that he's facing a, quote, serious political persecution, as his decades-old accounts with an unnamed lender, previously reported to be Coots, are being closed without explanation and resource. The now-GB News presenter further asserted that this issue may affect his future living in the UK, as he has reportedly been turned away from opening new personal and business accounts with seven other banks. Meanwhile, the pro-Scottish independence journalist Stuart Campbell suggested that his accounts with First Direct were cancelled after 25 years based on his LGBTQ plus stance. The retail bank division of HSBC didn't comment on the case, but stated that ending a customer relationship is, quote, absolutely not based on individual beliefs. European conservative brings us the right narrative spin that right-wing people have been experiencing corporate or institutional pushback for their political beliefs is not novelty at all. But recently, even their bank accounts have been shut down based on personal opinions. Debanking is a dangerous practice that threatens the very foundations of Western democracy by effectively turning individuals questioning the establishment into non-persons. We counter that with a left narrative coming from The Guardian. It's ironic that Farage and those like him in Britain are now crying persecution for having their bank accounts closed as they have long sought to force banks and building societies to dump loyal, law-abiding customers and organizations simply for having alleged links to Asian and African countries that are deemed, quote, risky in terms of money laundering and terrorism. As the saying goes, you reap what you sow. I used to be a, a customer of Bank of America back when they used to have those uh, predatory fees. Like when you would overdraft, they would organize the money that you overdrafted so that the biggest one would go first. And then yeah. all of your small ones would then be overdrafts, even if chronologically you did the small ones first. Yeah. And it was 35 bucks per overdraft. And me at the time, I mean, that was a killer. So you would, A, you wouldn't have that much money in the first place if you're right. overdrafting. Now, that, yep. that's my problem. But then you open your account one day and you're, and you're upset 
upside down 300 bucks or something. It's oh, a, it was a disaster. That McDonald's Big Mac ended up costing you $300. Oh, my God. It was worth it. <laughs> <laughs> Tragic news from Baltimore as a shooting leaves at least two dead and 28 injured. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, NPR Online News, Fox News, CNN, USA Today, and Forbes. On Sunday, at least two people were killed and 28 injured following gunfire at a block party in Baltimore. Three of the wounded victims were in critical condition, and many were under 18. 18-year-old Aliyah Gonzalez died at the scene, while 20-year-old Kylas Figbimi was pronounced dead after he was transported to the hospital. No suspects were identified, and there is a $28,000 reward for information leading to their capture. Acting Police Commissioner Richard Worley said the victims ranged in age from 13 to 32, with at least four younger than 18. Baltimore police, who have not released any information about potential suspects or a motive, reported receiving multiple calls from around 12.30 a.m. Sunday about gunshots in the city's Brooklyn neighborhood. Mayor Brandon Scott said the city's hearts are with all those who are recovering from their injuries and police are investigating who would commit such a reckless, cowardly act. Baltimore has seen 140 homicides in 2023, and the city has reported more than 300 in eight consecutive years. Those were the facts, and our first spin is a democratic narrative, and it's coming from CNN. This egregiously violent act shows once again how necessary it is to strengthen gun laws in the U.S. It should be more difficult to access guns so that they don't wind up in the wrong hands. Organizations like the National Rifle Association, which sued Governor Westmore over a gun safety bill he signed, aren't helping and should instead work to keep communities like Baltimore safer. And Breitbart brings the Republican narrative spin. Maryland already has a red flag law, universal background checks, a ban on high-capacity magazines, and other gun restrictions that are popular with Democrats. Yet none of those laws stop this tragedy or others that have happened in the city that's ranked number eight for gun control by every town for gun safety. It's time for liberals to look to other solutions to this problem. Twitter is sued over unpaid office fees. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Business Insider, CNN, The Guardian, and Forbes. Twitter is being sued by Facilitate, an Australian project management company, for around $700,000 in damages over the social media company allegedly not paying its bills. Facilitate's suit, which was filed in the U.S. District Court for the Northern District of California, claims that from 2022 through early 2023, it installed sensors in Twitter's London and Dublin offices, furnished an office in Singapore, and cleared out the company's Sydney's office. Twitter has not disputed the invoices, which date back to Elon Musk's purchase of the platform in the fall of 2022, but has reportedly not paid them. Twitter, which does not have a media relations department, did not issue a comment on this matter. Facilitate's suit is one of many against Twitter for allegedly failing to pay bills, as the platform is also being sued for not paying rent in Oakland, Boston, Seattle, London, and San Francisco. The Huffington Post brings us Narrative A on this story. Twitter, under Musk's leadership, has become chaotic. His decisions over content moderation have scared off advertisers, leaving the platform in bad financial straits and forcing everyone who does business with Twitter to sue for what they're due. Musk, meanwhile, has been reportedly choosing not to pay vital invoices. There's no telling how much longer Twitter will be in business. Narrative B comes from Bloomberg. 
When Musk took over Twitter, it was a financial wreck with unaffordable agreements in place. With new CEO Linda Yaccarino leading the way, Twitter is seeking to lessen its financial burden concerning vendors and make the company profitable. Vendors should consider working with Twitter until it gets back on track. Musk is leading an extraordinarily complex transition to make the ailing platform viable. Listeners of this show may know I'm basically exclusively TikTok at this point, but I only take in content. I don't provide or create anything. So I don't know if I'm really participating in the way you're supposed to. You're not even talking about your OnlyFans account. You generate a lot of well, content on that. Yeah, I mean, Scott. that's... I, I, well, I mean, I don't really <laughs> like... The UK to expand police powers on climate protests. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, ABC News, Associated Press, and BBC News. The UK has passed a law expanding and granting further police powers to counter a series of high-profile demonstrations along some of the state's busiest motorways, from environmental and climate action groups such as Just Stop Oil and Extinction Rebellion. Under the new Public Order Act, the police can now move static protests with locking on, where protesters attach themselves to each other, objects, or buildings, now being a criminal offense. Protesters found guilty of obstructing major transportation projects can also now be jailed for up to six months, with those who engage in digging tunnels under construction projects facing up to three years behind bars. Hundreds of climate protesters were already arrested last year for blocking major roads and bridges, while others threw soup and glued themselves to famous works of art and museums. People say that these incidents draw thousands of officers away from dealing with other crimes. Over the weekend, police removed Just Stop Oil demonstrators from blocking the Pride Parade in central London, citing Pride's acceptance of money from high-polluting industries. After briefly bringing the march to a halt, police arrested them on public nuisance charges. While activists say that laws violate their right to protest, government officials have stated that they're aimed at curbing disruption from a selfish minority. Home Secretary Suella Braverman said Britons are tired of selfish protesters and the mayhem has been a scandal. Scott, thanks for the facts of that story. The first spin is a pro-establishment narrative and it's coming from Telegraph. Anti-blockade laws are the government's justified response to public outcries. Not only do groups like Just Stop Oil ruin parades and disrupt regular traffic, but they also threaten lives by blocking ambulances from transporting patients to the hospital. The government has finally made the correct decision to deal with these protesters. There are more effective and civil ways to converse about climate change. And The Guardian brings us the establishment critical narrative. Just Stop Oil believes in saving the planet from destructive oil and gas burning, and it doesn't give a free pass to any enabling institutions. This is why, after Pride in London made United Airlines its signature parade sponsor, the grassroots group gave an ultimatum of removing the sponsor or being disrupted. Civil disobedience is how change happens, and so these brave protesters should continue to slow traffic if it means bringing an end to the earth-burning fossil fuel industry. The latest on the Nahal Merzuk shooting, a fund for an accused officer, tops 1 million euros. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Politico, Euronews, Al Jazeera, Independent, Guardian, and CNN. A fundraiser for the police officer who shot and killed French teenager Nahel Merzouk during a traffic stop has surpassed 1 million euros, or just over 1 million U.S. dollars, in a case that has sparked widespread unrest throughout France. 
The fundraising campaign was established by Jean Messia, a former advisor to the far-right politician and presidential candidate Marine Le Pen. It has thus far raised nearly five times more than a fundraiser for the family of Merzuk. Political figures condemned the fundraiser and called on the website GoFundMe to remove it from their site. A member of President Emmanuel Macron's En Marche party called it indecent and scandalous, while Merzuk's grandmother said her heart aches over the development. The 38-year-old officer who fired the fatal shot during the traffic stop in Nanterre last Tuesday has been charged with voluntary homicide. A prosecutor has said that the legal grounds for shooting Merzuk were not met, while the officer says he needed to protect himself, his colleagues, and the public. French law prohibits fundraisers that go towards costs and fines associated with criminal and correctional matters, with a GoFundMe spokesperson saying that since the fund is going directly to the family of the officer and not towards a legal defense fund, it's legal under French law. The killing of Merzuk touched off widespread unrest in France since last week, with at least 2,000 people being detained since his death. All right, we have a left narrative spin on this story from the National News. The disparity between the money raised for Nahel versus the officer who slayed him speaks volumes about how France has not reckoned with the racist society that led to his death. This fund risks instigating more violence, and the far-right provocateur behind it knows exactly what he's doing with this venture. GoFundMe needs to remove this fundraiser for the sake of public safety and to help France heal from the wounds of discrimination. Philstar brings us the right narrative. What happened to Nahel was tragic, but nothing justifies the widespread violence we've seen grip the country. The officer accused should not be crucified before facing a court of law, and a civilized nation cannot make decisions based on, quote, woke mob rule. We need peace now more than ever so that the real work can begin. Even the grandmother of Nahel has spoken out against the senseless violence, as none of this destruction can bring him back. Our final story, a study links COVID to youth diabetes. Here are the facts as agreed upon by JAMA Network Open, the National Library of Medicine, BBC News, the University of Minnesota's Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy, and Global News. According to a study published in JAMA Network Open Journal on Friday, more children and adolescents were diagnosed with type 1 diabetes during COVID compared with before the pandemic. An analysis of about 42 studies involving more than 100,000 youth between January 2020 and March 2023 was carried out by researchers from the University of Toronto using headings and terms related to COVID, diabetes, and diabetic ketoacidosis. The findings suggest that there was a 14% rise in the incidence rate of childhood type 1 diabetes during the first year of the pandemic, and about 27% in the second year of COVID compared to pre-pandemic levels. While the researchers couldn't find the exact cause behind the noted increase in diabetes cases in children and teenagers, they suggest the infection may have dysregulated glucose metabolism, and children susceptible to diabetes fall prey to it. Additionally, they noted clinic shutdowns in the early months of COVID could have triggered the surge, concluding hesitancy to seek care may be an important factor in the observed increased risk. According to a previous study by the University of British Columbia, which used provincial data and collected the health records of more than 620,000 people tested for COVID from January 2020 to December 2021, those with COVID infections were 17 to 22 percent at increased risk of developing diabetes within one year compared to those who had not been infected. Scott, thanks for the facts of that story. Our first bit is Narrative A coming from New York Times. 
Before the pandemic, the incidence rate of childhood type 1 diabetes was increasing by about 3% a year, which shows the steep rise in childhood diabetes during the pandemic was a direct result of COVID infection. This study adds to the evidence that the coronavirus adversely affected the pancreas, which makes insulin, spiking the children's sugar levels. And Medscape brings us narrative B. The study is not definitive. More research is needed to understand if the steep rise in childhood diabetes was a direct effect of COVID infection, as cases of childhood diabetes continue to rise even after normal life has resumed. It's important to know how much of the risk was based on COVID compared to other factors such as obesity and the complex interactions between these variables. Our final nerd narrative of today's podcast is coming from Metaculous Prediction Community. They say there's a 50% chance that at least 13.2% of U.S. adults will have diabetes type 1 and type 2 in the year 2032. Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Tuesday, July 4th, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on Improve the News, visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Eric Steider inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News.